Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Edward Cameron is on a mission to catalyse a low-carbon, climate-resilient and inclusive world. For over 20 years, Edward has worked with organisations such as BSR, We Mean Business, the World Resources Institute, the World Bank, the Government of the Maldives and the European Union. Throughout, he has been analysing, strategizing, and advocating for a joined-up approach to climate and development action. Edward even has a PhD in it. He says an advocate without an evidence base lacks credibility. And so I also work as an analyst to build the case for climate leadership grounded in research excellence and a forensic assessment of the drivers, challenges, barriers and conditions that can incentivize or undermine public and private ambition on climate change. Climate change might have been first mentioned back in 1988, but wait for this podcast. Edward is going to take us on a deep dive journey of what climate justice really means. Be prepared for thought leadership, leading edge thinking and some really, really wise advice. Edward, welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you today. So for Edward, for many, it makes complete sense that climate change is a human issue. But are the effects of climate change and our resilience to it completely balanced? I feel like the answer is no, but I'd love to know your thinking on why we feel this unbalance and and what we can expect in terms of kind of human impact from climate change. Well, I think the first thing to understand in terms of the human dimensions of climate change is that it is, of course, caused by human activity. It's caused predominantly by energy, transport and land use in the service of uh, human mobility, human energy needs and, of course, uh, agriculture. When it comes to the impacts, we understand climate risk in three dimensions. We understand it as the increase in intensity and frequency of hazards like hurricanes. We understand it as exposure to those hazards. But the critical third dimension is vulnerability, the underlying weaknesses that we have that amplify risk. And those underlying weaknesses are a series of intersecting inequalities. They can be social or cultural, they can be political or legal, and they can be financial. And the communities that are exposed to those intersecting inequalities, they find that their risk is greatly amplified. So women, for example, are quite often at the front lines of climate impacts because of these intersecting inequalities that they are suffering. And in fact, the reason why I work on climate change is a statistic from 1991, a cyclone that passed through Bangladesh, and over 90% of the fatalities were women. And I was fascinated to learn why could this be possible that women were disproportionately impacted versus their male neighbors. And the reason is they weren't allowed to leave home without a male guardian. They'd never been taught how to climb a tree. They'd never been taught how to swim. They had no access to information, so they didn't know the storm was approaching. They had no access to decision-making, so they couldn't work with the local municipalities to build their own resilience. And they had no action uh, access to justice. So once the storm had passed and decimated their homes and their livelihoods, they had no redress. And most importantly of all, at the end of it all, they had no access to financial services, so they couldn't generate the types of incomes to rebuild their shattered lives. So unless we understand the ways in which 
intersecting inequalities amplify climate risk, then we're only really looking at risk in two dimensions and not properly building resilience. So Edward, thank you so much for that sort of deep dive into the, I guess, the factors that create those unbalances. But I was wondering whether you had some thinking around what we should do about those imbalances. What what actions can we actually take? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to give up what has been a decades-long habit of treating climate change as an environment and energy problem that will be solved by an environment and energy policy. And we have to realize that, in fact, for example, in the United States, where I live right now, the most important response to climate change may not be an energy policy. It may be a voting rights act so that more people who are impacted by climate change can be involved in the decision-making process and can, in concert with their local representatives, respond to the, the threat of climate change and the damage that it causes in their communities and in their households. I think it means that we must address climate change from the social side of the sustainability spectrum and not just the environmental side. I happen to believe, for example, that the strengthening of human rights, particularly access rights, where people do have access to information, decision-making and justice, is one of the most important parts of the climate puzzle. And unfortunately, what we have seen for far too long is we've seen things like, for example, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change process focus too heavily on economy-wide emissions reductions targets, focus too heavily on energy as the only real area of focus, and neglect all of these other social safeguards, social safety nets, human rights issues that really need to be prioritized if we're to replace vulnerability with resilience in frontline communities. Thank you, Edward. And that makes so much sense. And our podcast title is Business Fights Poverty. We care deeply about, you know, what can people from within business who want to take action, what, what should they be doing about this? How can they really put people at the heart of their climate action? So I would say that there's a number of things. The first is to deepen the existing work within business on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, because we must first avoid unmanageable climate change. And that means aggressive greenhouse gas emissions reductions. We've seen a rapid increase in the level of corporate leadership on this issue over the course of the last six or seven years. Today, we have about 6,000 companies worldwide who collectively represent about $36 trillion or half the global economy who've made public commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And they've done that on things like renewable energy. They've done it on electric vehicles. They've pledged to end commodity-driven deforestation in their supply chain. But there's a fundamental problem with many of these business climate commitments, and that is that they're not sufficiently robust. Too many of them have made commitments out to 250, uh, 2050, I should say, without having a target or a plan for what they achieve by 2030. Too many businesses are depending on offsets rather than emissions reductions at source. And as a consequence of those and other things, there isn't sufficient level of robustness within these corporate climate commitments. So I think we need to have a focus now, not on more announcements, but on accountability and implementation. Second thing is we need to broaden out beyond greenhouse gas emissions reductions, because as we go about the process of avoiding unmanageable climate change, we must also manage unavoidable climate change. And that means building adaptive capacity into our companies, across our supply chains, and within frontline communities. And in order to do that, we must properly diagnose climate risk as three dimensions, hazard, exposure, and vulnerability. And in my experience, too many companies are actually looking at a three-dimensional problem in two dimensions. They're only thinking about exposure to hazard. Once you properly diagnose climate risk, 
you can then begin to put in place the building blocks of resilience. And there are six so-called building blocks, human capital, social capital, natural capital, physical capital, financial capital. Together, those allow you to put in place the right sort of resilience strategy right across the business, and companies need to do that. And then the third and final thing I would recommend is we need to eliminate inconsistencies within the business model. There's far too many businesses right now who are talking about reducing their production emissions, but they're still generating a very materialistic and consumption-driven economy. There are far too many businesses who have climate pledges, but are actually undermining climate policy through their advocacy. Um, so I think what we need is a greater level of consistency to take this issue out of corporate sustainability departments and to actually embed it right across the C-suite so that the chief financial officer, the chief procurement officer, the chief technical officer, everybody across the C-suite has a role and also has performance goals related to this topic and not just the chief sustainability officer. Ah, oh, thank you, Edward. So I hope everyone is taking notes there. Loads of really, really practical ways to tackle sort of putting people at the heart of your climate action there. Thank you. And I, I mean, I'm always trying to be positive. And if businesses were being positive, if they were taking really bold actions, what could they achieve and how could we get there? I think we can. And I think that businesses are the secret of success here. Uh, because if you look, for example, at the amount of money that's going to be mobilized at COP26 in Glasgow, if we are successful, we're talking about $100 billion per year in public money. Well, the size of the global economy is $90 trillion. So ultimately, what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to reshape the global economy. And that means engaging the private sector, not just multinational corporations, but also, of course, right down to the level of SMEs within emerging markets and developing company, uh, countries. And it can be done, and it's important that we do it. If you look at a company like Walmart, they're the largest private sector employer in the world. They have about 100,000 unique suppliers in the United States alone. They're responsible for 11% of all Chinese imports into the United States. So one company alone, when taking climate commitments, has the potential to have reverberations right across the world, right across the real economy, down into local community through their climate leadership. If you think about the financial services sector, trillions of dollars right now on an annual basis are being spent on the wrong sorts of things. They're being spent on an energy system that is extractive, but is also polluting. They're being spent on a food system that is amplifying food insecurity while driving up greenhouse gas emissions. That money can be redirected towards investments that are low carbon, resilient and inclusive. And if we were to do that within our financial services system, we would see huge progress. So I actually think that the reorientation of our focus on climate away from governments exclusively towards a much better cooperation between governments and the real economy in recent years has been very positive. But now we must get to the next stage. And the next stage means let's replace these announcements and these press releases with real accountability and real implementation. So Edward, I mean, you have been thinking about climate justice for quite a long time. And you have been really pushing the frontiers in terms of how to articulate why we should put people at the heart of climate action and, and the in, imbalances in, in the effects that climate change is going to have on, on different people. What are the trends that you're seeing on your horizon that you think we should be aware of at the moment? Well, I think the work in the work that I do, what I always try to advise companies is think about what leadership will look like in 2030 as opposed to trying to duplicate and replicate what leadership looked like in 2015. 
So it's not about scaling up what we did in the run-up to the Paris Agreement. It's about horizon thinking and understanding that leadership is dynamic, that the world is dynamic, and therefore what we need to be aspiring to needs to be different. And to give a very concrete illustration of that, I think the work in corporate climate leadership in the run-up to 2015 was really about emissions reductions and was really about holding temperatures below two degrees Celsius. We're now at a moment where corporate climate leadership is heavily focused on net zero targets by 2050. I think by 2030, it's going to change again. It's going to be net zero, but it's also going to be what are you doing to build resilience inside your company, across your supply chain and within frontline communities? It's going to be what are you doing on the just transition, making sure that those communities and companies that will lose out in a transition to a new climate economy, that they are invited into a new shared prosperity. So what are we going to do about coal country? What are we going to do about oil country? What are we going to do about the communities that are heavily invested in a high carbon model of agriculture? And I think there's a third element, which is inclusion. In my mind, if we spend trillions of dollars over the course of the next decade, but we repeat and recreate the economy as it was in December 2019, an economy where you had over 800 million people around the world suffering from food insecurity where you had 22,000 children dying every day of hunger, where you had between 60 and 100 million disappeared women around the world. What will all of this effort have been for? So I think it's no longer enough that we focus our attention on the chemical composition of our atmosphere. We've actually got to focus our attention on how we build a low-carbon, resilient, and inclusive world. And that requires a different menu of options within companies. It requires integration across the sustainability agenda. It requires mobilization right across the C-suite. It requires consistency. So we're not just, for example, reducing emissions over here while advocating for policies in the public space that actually drive up emissions over there. So my, my key message, I think, is let's understand what the future looks like and work towards that as opposed to simply replicating a vision of success that we had some years ago that may have been fit for that moment, but is now beginning to look rather obsolete. And ladies and gentlemen, that is why Edward Cameron is really a leading thinker and influencer. What a treat to have you on this podcast. Um, thank you very much, Edward, for sharing your thoughts with us there. And continuing on that theme, and you, you have been and continue to be a prolific thought leader, a writer, an influencer, a real advocate. You've been working really hard to engage the world around human impacts of climate change perhaps before many others were even thinking about this, how do you go about spotting the trends? How do you frame them in such compelling ways? You know, what would be your advice to others who are potentially kind of out there and want to influence and make a difference? Wow, the secret sauce. I would say there are four elements to the secret sauce. The first is, I really think it's important to be what I call a nexus thinker. And that means we need to very deliberately and intentionally break down silos that we've all been operating in. So, for example, last year, I decided to write a book called A World Made New, which was very deliberately focused on stimulus packages and economic recovery packages in the wake of COVID, because I felt that we as a climate community spend far too much time thinking about environment and energy policy and ignoring the fact that the G20 was going to spend $20 trillion on COVID recovery, and that was likely to be a once-in-a-generation opportunity to mobilize finance in support of decarbonization and resilience building. Similarly, a lot of my career has been spent thinking about the intersection between human rights and climate change. So I think being a nexus thinker and not being siloed is really important. 
The second thing that I believe very, very strongly is that we need to be courageous. And what I mean is, are you willing to be the person in the room that upsets everybody else by saying a truth that needs to be heard? Are you willing to pardon my language here to call bullshit on things when that needs to be when that when that needs to happen? I'm often asked in conversations, what are the one or two things we must do on climate change to solve the problem? And people are expecting that my answer will be we need more renewable energy and we need to tackle food waste, for example. I actually think the number one thing we need is courage. We need to be willing to speak forcefully truth to power, whether that's to our clients or whether that's to governments. And I feel one of the great failings right now in the consulting world and also in the nonprofit world is when we have to choose between satisfying our client or speaking truth to power, we default towards satisfying the client. I don't think the client wants that. And certainly our mission needs better than that. I think the third thing we need is greater personal resilience, because this is a very, very difficult topic to work on. It's the most challenging issue. It has a lot of heartbreak associated with it. It has a lot of failure associated with it. So you actually need to become accustomed to failure in order to succeed on this issue. And sometimes I comfort myself by knowing that the greatest athletes in the world spend most of their time failing, but they learn from that failure and they come back and they recommit and eventually they succeed. I think creativity would be the fourth and final thing that I would say is really, really important because we need creative solutions if we're really going to create a better world out of this climate crisis. We need to think about, for example, is a Voting Rights Act the right solution to the problem we're facing? Is, for example, addressing inheritance tax where we need to go in order to mobilize the finance necessary for decarbonization? What do we do about monies that are parked in off offshore bank accounts that hide away $6 trillion every year that could be better spent on reducing emissions and building resilience? So thinking creatively about what sorts of solutions we can mobilize are not always defaulting to this being about energy efficiency and energy mix, I think is really important. So they would be the things that, that I would recommend, the things that I personally try to prioritize. And finally, Edward, my final question for our conversation today. I want to know what's next for you. Where are you going next? What do you think, you know, what's up for you? And where should we be looking out for you going forward? So what's next for me is that I'm about to publish a new book uh, called The New Corporate Climate Leadership. It's published by Routledge, and it will be coming out on the 12th of November. It examines the current state of corporate climate leadership, and it offers an agenda for how we need to evolve that leadership over the coming decade. It talks about the need, for example, for companies to engage in public policy constructively. It talks about the need for this creativity and courage that I've just mentioned. Beyond that, I continue to work with clients across the government, philanthropic, corporate, and NGO sectors, and I hope to go on doing that. And I think in terms of what we need to do as a community, I think we need to figure out what is our best role and where can we deliver the most value add to this mission that we're all engaged with. Uh, for some of us, that's going to mean uh, working in a company. For some of us, it's going to mean running for office and trying to be a leader in the policy and political space. What I always advise to younger people, however, people who are embarking on this, perhaps early in their career, perhaps they're doing postgraduate study, I would say to them, we don't really need another well-meaning person to go and work for an environmental NGO. What we really need are well-meaning people to go and work in the financial services sector or the food, beverage, and agriculture sector or the extractives industry, because there's a new economy that needs to be created. And that new economy will have a bumpy transition from here to there, but it's also a new economy of tremendous opportunities. 
the creation of a new climate economy is the greatest opportunity of this century. And we need people who are skilled in creating that new economy while also being purpose-driven and willing to push it in the direction of decarbonization and resilience. Well, Edward Cameron, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your wisdom, your insights, and just really, really opening our eyes to the challenges of putting people at the heart of our climate action. Edward Cameron, thank you very much, sir. Thanks, Katie. It was a pleasure. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 